Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Gary Jubelin is a former Homicide Squad police officer. Uh, he has his own podcast called I Catch Killers. It's very popular on all outlets. Gary Jubelin, welcome to The Stick Up. Thanks, Russell. It's good to uh, be sitting opposite you. Mate, it's, it's a very interesting the friendship that uh, you and I have formed, the former Homicide Squad cop and the bank robber. Yeah, I know. I uh, I, I quite I, I smile when I think about it, but uh, it's been a bit of a uh, journey for both of us, hasn't it? You know what? And I, and, I, and I say this, and I say it from the heart, I, I never thought I would say a cop is a good bloke, but you're a dead set champion. Oh, I appreciate that. And you know, coming from someone like you really uh, it, it carry, carries some weight because I know we're uh, we're meant to have been sworn enemies. I, I was in the stick-ups at one stage or the armed hold-up squad when you were robbing banks and uh, I, God knows what would have happened if we came across each other. But uh, when uh, when I first met you and uh, we were introduced, uh, I think it was our, uh, our mutual friend John Killick who... People may or may not have heard that name, but uh, he was the uh, person who escaped from Silverwater Prison in a helicopter. Um, John introduced me to you, and we, we caught up at that cafe that uh, morning, and I, I think we both sp- uh, spoke the same language, didn't we? We yeah. sort of hit it off straight away. And I couldn't believe how much we had in common. Like, I used to think coppers were like aliens, and, and you know what I mean? They come from a different planet, and I, you know, I couldn't imagine myself being able to relate to uh, any of you guys, but I just, I just couldn't believe how much we had in common. Yeah, when I, I can speak from my point of view, when I was a cop, I was sort of looking at things as, as a cop, um, and I really didn't have the opportunity to get to know people like yourself the, the way I've got to know you uh, since leaving the, leaving the police. And uh, <laughs> who would have thought we share common interests and uh, yeah, we uh, we speak the same language. You know, it spun me out once. I wasn't. I was through the work I do. I was, I'm exposed to a hell of a lot of trauma, and I was at a wellness centre at the back of Moolumbar, and my phone rang one day, and it was you. And you said to me, "I just get a feeling, mate, you're not travelling too well." He said, "Are you all right?" And it was like, and I said, "Is that cop intuition?" And you sort of laughed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look, I, and I know that you were going through a, a, a big transition, and. Uh, yeah, when when I met you and uh, and we we sat down and it wasn't just uh, doing the podcast, we caught up a fair bit and uh, yeah, the way that you've turned your life around, I knew it was a, it was a tough tough uh, tough thing that you were doing, and I I also had uh, my life had been turned upside down too after I'd been charged and left the police and then uh, then convicted, so I sort of could understand you were going through a change and, and trying to make a go of it, and I just felt the, the need to reach out to you then and uh, and have a chat. Yeah, and I really appreciate that, man. And it's, and it's good to have a friendship with a guy that's got the intuition that you've got like no other. Mate, I would have hated to been pinched by you. Mate, you would have me cold. <laughs> you would have me cold. You would have been, thought, you would have been reading my thoughts. And um, But, uh, yeah. Gary, why, what appealed to you and why did you want to become a cop? I, I didn't grow up um, in any way thinking I wanted to be a cop. I, you know, it was 
if I thought what my life might be, say, teenagers, I, I might have ended up on the beach as a hippie. Um, yeah, that, that was uh, yeah, that was the life I was uh, sort of interested in or drawn towards. I started working in the building industry and uh, I enjoyed that, but that was sort of my father was in the building industry and it, it's something that I knew from when I was a you know, young fella. And uh, so I got a trade and I, I was an electrician and I was on a building site one day and I'd been in a ceiling, it was hot, it was summer, uh, it was it was full of cut. insulation. Full I've of, been there. I've yeah. been there. You know what it's like. People yeah. don't see what what goes on uh, when you're crawling around the ceilings. And uh, I came out and I was having lunch at a park at uh, at Ride, and uh, two cops were chasing a, a bad guy up the street. And I thought that looked like fun, and I, I applied for the police um, the the next day. So it wasn't something that I grew up always aspiring to be, but. I don't think I was ever uh, suited for a nine-to-five job. Uh, I wanted something that sort of challenged me and uh, inspired me. And when I joined the cops, uh, it fitted like a glove. I, I just I, I couldn't believe I was getting paid for it. Um, yeah, I was having having fun. And uh, did you go down to Goulburn? Did you go? Yeah, d- down to uh, down the Goulburn, and uh, it was interesting. You met a lot of people. And it was uh, I liked it in that that time I think it's become uh, you know it's not I'm not criticizing the world's changed in so many different ways but uh, you got down there and I remember uh, they put us through a PT session which I, I always liked my fitness and uh, a couple of people were throwing up and they made them do push-ups on uh, where they'd uh, just thrown up and I thought oh this this feels real <laughs> and I like that you wouldn't get away with it now yeah, yeah. obviously but uh, I, I just enjoyed it and uh I still remember when I first got uh, the first paycheck came in because you used to get paid when you were down in the uh, down at the academy. I couldn't believe I was getting paid for not busting my ass on the building side on the jackhammer or you know doing hard physical work. And I thought, okay, this this is a good uh, good gig. But um, when I left the academy and stationed at the police station, where was uh, your first station? Where were your first station? Um, up at Hornsby. That was that was my first one, which was a good. St- a the, good old, the old police station the, or the new one? The old the old police station. I've been in the cells there. <laughs> Very good oh. at, at the old one. Yeah, the old yeah, one. Well, I when I went to detectives, my office was right beside that, and they oh. were shocking. Oh, they were rancid. I know the uh, the corrective services were on strike for a period of time, and we had uh, some uh, prisoners in there, and literally my desk was um, yeah. Four foot from the um, front grill of the uh, the cells, and uh, I, I felt sorry for the people in there. So I apologise if no. you, you were one of them. Oh. It was old school, but I got to Hornsby, and I, I liked Hornsby. You know, I wanted to get involved in as much action as I could. What I liked about Hornsby, it was a um, you know a transport hub, so you had a lot of people coming through. It was a gateway to the the um, north coast, so. There was a lot of stuff that uh, came through uh, came through Hornsby, and it was a good sort of learning experience. My bank robbing area was from Hornsby. I had like a specific area that I used to rob the banks. I used to rob them from. I think the, the one I robbed twice was the Taramara National Australia yeah, yeah. in the Lane Cove Commonwealth. But um, mate, tell us about a day in the life of the cop. Okay, um, different different stages. So I'll, I'll talk first up. Uniform, uniform policing, and yeah, they're the first. Uh, detect- I, I love detectives' work, but uh, uniform police are the first responders, and uh, you just did not know what you were going to get into on on uh, uh, days at Horn- say at Hornsby. Yeah, you might get a it might get an armed robbery. I remember one that um, the Commonwealth Bank uh, uh, 
went off. It wasn't uh, me. No, I'm not. <laughs> That'd be weird if we went down there. <laughs> really? <laughs> but uh, I remember that job for a specific reason. There was um, there was uh, a lot of stick-ups going around at the time, and this bloke, had the offender, had driven a car and crashed it straight through the, the front uh, um, window when they were opening the automatic teller. And uh, he hit, uh, hit a bloke, and the bloke had serious injuries. I was the first responder there, and uh, there was another car that pulled up beside me. And when I've got there, I, I see this cop rolling around in, in broken glass. I thought he'd been been shot, but he'd, he'd run into the bank and uh, tripped over the over the uh, glass. But you have that adrenaline rush like that, and then you could be you know doing paperwork and uh, sitting down and uh, you know riding up a, a traffic accident. In the early days, a lot of the work that we did in um, uniform was responding to uh, car accidents. It, it's changed uh, changed now, but I'm talking sort of 30, 34 years ago 30 or more. Um, so a lot of the work was done that, there. But you'd go to domestics, which was a r- really weird experience. I think I was 22 or 23 when I joined the cops. And uh, you know nothing about life, but you get called to a domestic, and within 12 months, you're the senior person on the truck. So uh, that's how quickly you know people think we're all experienced cops. It might be less than 12 months, and you're you're calling the shots out in the field. You'll get called to a um, a domestic, and you're speaking to you know a man and woman in their 40s, let's say, and you're trying to tell them how to live their life. So there was a lot of uh, different things, but what I liked about policing was the um, variety. I did. Uh, I got into the uh, TRG, so the the riot squad. I did that part time up at the Bathurst races, uh, the bike races, and uh, different things there. So that was a good, uh, uh, yeah, a nice little experience. But the diversity of uh, the work that you do in policing always amazed me. Um, then I, I sort of fell into, uh, or not fell into, playing clothes. Uh, which, when I say playing clothes, I'm talking detectives. That's the Hollywood stuff of police force, isn't it? That's where the, the rock star. Uh, yeah, well, look, if if we're all honest, it looked like it was a pretty cool gig. And uh, I, uh, I I remember I, I turned up, I think it was a, uh, a murder or it was a serious assault. So in uniform, you, you go to the scene and you call the detectives and you set up the tape around the scene. And then these cool dudes uh, walked in there. They, they might have been dickheads, I don't know, they, but they just looked cool. They were the detectives. They went under the tape and they walked out of the walked out of the crime scene with this knowing look on their face. And I thought, I, I wouldn't mind seeing what's behind the uh, behind the tape there. And I, I sort of got into it from there. Every day was exciting. And uh, look, I'll be honest, it, it's the thrill of the chase. Like as a as a cop, it was it's like a kid playing hide and seek. You, you're looking for looking for the uh, the bad guys, and uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and I, I wouldn't say I started off in the policing for uh, noble reasons, like it wasn't I wanted to do good for society. That came when I learnt, you know, uh, learnt more about myself, but also you know, the shit that goes down. But it's just that adrenaline. You know, you're, you're turning up at scenes, you don't know what you're going to find, you, you get into, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd get into fights at, uh, at work, not a lot of fights, because I quite often, if you had the gift of the... Um, communication you could de-escalate things and uh, I saw a lot of cops get into um, there was always a, some cops that got assaulted a lot and was because of the way they spoke to people by like, each other or, or by or by by the people are arresting I, I've seen 
plenty of police assault each other, but that's usually a, a, a few drinks. In the car too, park. A few drinks too many at the yeah. bar or in the in the car park. Now, when uh, members of the public, the police that uh, get get assaulted, quite often because they didn't have that ability to de-escalate. And I won't say that every time because sometimes people are looking for a fight and it's a poor police that are going to be the victims. But I always found that uh, you could de-escalate it. Like I had plenty of blokes, you know, I'm going to do this to you, do that to you. I'll, I'll give an example. You go into, go into a pub uh, when I was in uniform or even when you're in plain clothes, people know, know who you are. There could be some bloke that's got his mates around him and he, he's going to call you out and go, what are you fucking doing here, cop? That, that type of thing. Now, you could respond in two ways. You, you could go over there and, and, and grab him and escalate it. Or you go, mate, I'm just trying to do my job and if you know he's threatening to fight me, I might say, Well look, you might you might win, you might not, but either way, you're gonna get locked up. So how about we just walk walk away from this? He keeps his respect amongst his mates, he didn't have to back down, and then you can de escalate situations like that. So I use that as an example. And some of the cops that I, I respect the most, like I got the detectives that I looked up to, the, the you know experienced, um, you know great detectives, but there were other cops that just had that gift of the gab, and you would have seen them, the the uh, station sergeant or the charge sergeant. Sometimes the people in the dock, and you're, you've sat in the dock, are pretty angry, and yeah, they just want to create mayhem. And I, I've, I've seen some good sergeants, you know, male or female the ability to de-escalate anything mm. like that. and uh, a bit of an art to that, though, isn't there? A bit of an art to that. I, 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 you're pointing that out, Gary. I have seen that. I have seen some, like, I could be in, an, like, like I've just been pinched for robberies, yeah. right? I've, I've seen my life going down the, the gurgler. Yeah. I could be, <clears throat> I could be uh, angry, you know, I could be, you know, I mean, feel aggressive. I feel like, you know, I've got to do something. Yeah. And it can be some of them ones that just simple, mate. Do you, do you want a cheeseburger or do you want a, you know what I mean, or coffee or drink yeah. of water? That just something simple as that can yeah. de-escalate things. And I, I reckon that's the art of good policing. Like mm. I, I'm all for sometimes you've got to take a hard hand. And I, I, I've never been accused of going soft in policing. But you can de-escalate and manage things around. It doesn't have to be all confrontational. But uh, sort of getting back to what uh, drove me to policing, it was the excitement of it. Yeah. You didn't know what you were going to do each day and you get dragged into things that you, you didn't expect and you, you get home and go, wow, I, I, I didn't think I'd be doing that, that today. So you never knew what was around the corner. That suits p some people. Other people don't like it. They want the stability, that certainty. Like you could never, um, you could never plan to, you know, especially when I was a, a detective in the thick of things, you'd make plans to, to catch up with people or whatever and invariably you'd uh, you get called away or get tied up with a job. But there's the benefits of it that you never got bored. You, I never once, in all the time I was in the cops, I never once sat there looking at a clock waiting for the shift to end. You know, I was always always engaged, always interested and, uh, you know, <laughs> done some, uh, you know, really... Really, what I, I think um, amazing things that I, I wouldn't have done if I didn't join the police. I, I, I can relate to the, the, the adrenaline things because for me, running out of a bank, not knowing if your head was ever get there, exploded like a pumpkin, yeah. is that same adrenaline, you know, yeah. like as you would be turning up to see a bank robber coming out of the bank yeah. Yeah. and arresting them. I, I was robbing banks at the tail end of Roger Rogerson and his crew. 
Yeah. And they, they were shooters. I was also in the uh, SBSU, which is the State Protection Support Unit, which used to support the Tactical Operations Unit. I did a secondment with the Tactical Operations Unit. So a lot of times when the bank rob- robberies were on, I was one of the guys in the uh, the black suit and uh, all the, the black overalls and the the shotguns ready to, ready to go when you guys ran out. So <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And you know, it, it's funny you get in that mindset that uh, you know if shit goes down, well, I'm not I'm not going to die. The other bloke's going to die, and uh, that's it's a funny uh, funny headspace to be in. And uh, whether because well, you're committed to it, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that. That's what a lot of people I think would struggle with being that committed to it, knowing that, that that's what you got to do. Yeah, yeah. And look, I I understand that, and, and I've said this to you know blokes I, I, I've locked up that have done uh, done stick ups and all that, that they've got to be pumped up to go in there. Yeah, like because you don't know, you know, you don't know how that's going to escalate. There could be someone like me in there off duty or something. You don't know what what's going to happen. So, yeah. And I think, you know, how we, um, we've got to know each other quite well and there's similar things. Now, I, I'm working on the side of the cops, you're working on the other side, but I do understand where you're coming from because I think anyone that's been thrown into the mix in that has shared that same, same, same experience. Oh. And, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm chasing a crook, I'm sure you were running away from the cops as hard as I was chasing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, and um, and that was just one of those things. <laughs> you know, I used to have uh, nightmares of uh, uh, like bloke, like blokes like Rogerson and that sort yeah. of stuff. You know what I mean? And I, um, you know, I used to when I was robbing banks, I used to have this nightmare about coming out and just getting opened up on like I was like a, like a John Dillinger movie or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was, but and I think that's why for me the way I did rob banks was under the influence of heroin. Yeah, that that might have uh, dulled it or uh, prepared you for it. But yeah, what you're saying about worrying about coming out, yeah, we the the way the cops work, we if we knew a, a robbery was, we might have had surveillance on you or whatever. So you very well could have come out and uh, ran into uh, half a dozen of us with guns pointed at your head. So I used to jump on. I used to know I was under surveillance, and what I used to do was jump on a motorbike and go yep. into traffic up Canterbury Road and lose them. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, a funny story. I remember one day I was seeing a school teacher and I seen this guy was watching me. Yeah. And, and how I knew he was a He had his newspaper upside down. He had the biking glass. <laughs> and I drove past and I looked in the rear view mirror and he was reading the newspaper, but it was upside down. Yeah, and I was thinking, yeah. I wonder if they taught him that in the academy. Jesus. <laughs> a couple of holes cut out, <laughs> in the, out in the paper. But, like, you, you talk that. And I always um, – and, and I, I'm, I'm saying this that – I don't know how you guys like. I, I've done things, and you, yeah, we've all done done things, and you think when's that going to come back to haunt you? And I'm not talking. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be yeah breaking the uh, breaking the the law or, or whatever. But you know, we all all carry secrets in our own own way. You've you've robbed a bank. I can imagine the the high when you've got away. You haven't been shot. You've you've got some cash, and if you're feeding your heroin habit, but Jesus apparent paranoia must have set in like you would be thinking everyone's looking at you i know i know when the police were going after me for a very minor matter i was feeling that sense of paranoia this that you felt the full weight of the state coming after you how did how did you deal 100%, with it i was i was i'll tell you what it was i was the most un uh, you know most uncomfortable i've ever been in my life i knew yeah. something was like law of averages tells you yeah and you wonder, you replay that whole event 50 times a day to say, did you make this mistake? Did you make that mistake? Yeah. Did you leave this here or did you leave that there? 
there's no peace in it. And I say that to young blokes today, you know, I say that there was no peace in anything I'd done. I yeah. said that was the most uncomfortable period of my life that I, you know, today I, I, I'm just doing the right thing. Yeah. I, I don't have to worry if my house is broke. Or people go, I have like blokes that, don't get in any trouble anymore, and they go, oh, just be careful what you say in a car, it's mostly bugged, and I go, I don't give a fuck, uh, yeah. I don't care if it's bugged. Today I have peace because I do the right thing. Back then, I was far from it, and that, that uncomfortability like that, I reckon creates sort of mental health problems. Oh, I, I reckon for sure. I, I think anyone, if, if you apply pressure too much like that, where I would imagine you'd be going through stages in your life where, okay, you, you might have met someone or you're just in a, in a good space, but you'd always be thinking that can be taken away from you, and and the the type of crimes that you were doing are taken away taken away from you in dramatic circumstances. It'll be knock on the door or a sledgehammer through the door, and all of a sudden your life is turned upside down. Yeah. I have so many sleepless nights and that sort of thing, and that that paranoia is, oh mate, watching me. Out. And t- imagine today, like back then, they never had mobile phones with cameras on them. Yeah. Matt, today would be horrific because everyone would be on their phone. You think they're following you or talking <laughs> yeah. to you or setting you up or whatever. And yeah. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be good. And, 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 and my experience, I think I got a bit of a predisposition to paranoia delusions in the first place, and that just only amplified it back then. Oh, um, it would have to add to it ten, tenfold. There's a line in a John Cougar Mellencamp song, and it's, I think the song's called Minutes and Memories, and he goes, uh, An honest man's pillows is peace of mind. Yeah, and um, that resonates with me because I've got that in droves these days. You know, I don't care if someone's looking at me or whatever; they can take photos of me or or whatever. I have peace of mind, and I think that's more valuable to me these days than any amount of money that I could get out of a bank robbery. Yeah, it mu- it must be. I I can't imagine what you've gone through in the in the life changes, but it must be a good space you're in now that uh, you can you can put your head and it's a good saying you, you can put your head on head on the pillow and not uh, not have a worry. Yeah. Let's just uh, jump back for a second. Um, you're now a detective. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that was yeah. That's been a large part of my career. I've done the uniform for. How long were your uniform before you become a detective? Uh, two years. You had yeah. had to do two years. And I, uh, the way it was in those days, you'd get a tap on the shoulder, and a detective that I respected uh, gave me the tap on the shoulder and said, "Hey, uh, uh, you consider a career in uh, plain clothes?" And I, I, I was sort of chuffed with it. I've gone. Uh, oh, I'd like to, but I didn't want to put my hand up and say I want to be a detective because it's not the way it, way it worked. And uh, so then you get tried out. So they you get sort like of a probation period, a probation period, just see if you're suitable. And they call that you're in plain clothes. So you, you're not a designated detective if you uh, if you perform and uh, yeah, because it's a, a different skill um, in uh, being a detective. A lot of it's paperwork. You got to be good at paperwork. You got to be prepared to give evidence at court a lot because you spend a lot of time in the a lot of time in the witness box. I, I don't like to use the word coach, but did you sort of get some sort of uh, law education or anything like that? You uh, you do a detective's course, which is out of all the things I've done, uni courses and, and different things. But the, the detective's course back in the back in the time that I did it in the um, nineteen ninety around that that period eighty nine ninety. It was one of the hardest things I've done. It was six weeks, I think, or it might have been a little bit longer, and it was intense. It was intense. You'd, you'd go home and you'd be studying, studying, because you just had to get it right. And, and what, uh, what sort of stuff were you studying there? Uh, a lot of it was about law. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, knowledge is power, as yeah. they say, and uh, if you know your law, um, that sets you up well. Hmm. They, they teach you about interview techniques and that, but I, I really think you learn that 
on in, out in the field. And uh, I was fortunate uh, to have a, a great mentor early in my uh, career. Shout out to him, Jim Williams, who was a really good detective, and he. He was keen. He he was he was like a kid. He was that excited. He just wanted to get out and uh, and uh, you know solve crimes. But he was a good detective. Taught me about the need to be thorough. Um, he set me up beautifully one uh, one day in the uh, in the witness box. We'd been we'd been working uh, afternoon shift because you had to work afternoon shift, and we'd lock someone up. It was just a, a minor break and enter, but the matter was going before before the uh, court. And when I say just a minor break and enter, I'm very mindful that the victims of crime don't think it's mi- uh, minor when someone's you know invaded their personal space. But in the scale of things, it was a relatively minor charge. Back then, we had to learn our statement. So if it was a four-page statement, you had to learn it verbatim. Mm. I don't know if you no, remember that. But we'd get in the witness box yeah. and we'd have to say at uh, you know, 6 a.m. on Tuesday, the 12th of July, I spoke to uh, Russell blah, blah, blah at such and such a location and you just have to rattle it off. Uh, for some, it was some archaic thing that you know detectives should be able to learn, learn verbatim. So... Before you go to court, you'd, there was a lot of preparation. You'd have to get the statement in your head verbatim and uh, know all the details. We're working afternoon shift, and uh, I said to Jim, shouldn't we be um, um, you know, preparing for court tomorrow because we're going to court? And he said, no, nah, no, nah, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. I'm thinking, okay, well, he's the experience. I'm the, I'm the newbie here. And uh, we get to court the next day. And uh, normally he'd go in first, and I'd go in to give evidence after he's given in, uh, given evidence. And he just said, look, I'm not going. We're going to put you in first. So I'm, you know, been in plain clothes for about uh, six, eight months. Didn't really know my way around the, the court system that, that well. Get in the witness box and I was just carved up by the defence solicitor. Every question I didn't want to be asked, he asked me. And I, I got out. I was just this dishevelled mess. The tie was down there and I just got out and thought, maybe I'm not suited for a life in plain clothes. And when I got out, Jim uh, is sitting outside court. Said, "How'd you go?" And I said, "I was stuffed. I just couldn't believe he he knew all this information. He was asking me this, asking me that." And then uh, the solicitor walked around and, and said, "G'day, Jim. How are you going?" And Jim introduced. He was mates with the solicitor, and mm. they set me up. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Jim's way of te- testing me how I'd uh, how I'd handle the pressure in the uh, in the witness box. And uh, he said, "Yeah, well, you've learnt now, haven't you? I've taught you that uh, you never go in there underprepared and little things like that. But they're gold, you know, to be taught taught uh, yeah. taught things like that. So I was fortunate enough to get a good mentor. That's local detectives, and then." Um, I was in that for about uh, three or four years, um, working as a local detective. So you're doing um, break and enters, sexual assaults, uh, armed robberies. Occasionally you'd get a murder investigation. But then the uh, armed hold-up squad, uh, again, a, a tap on the shoulder, invited me to come to the armed hold-up squad at uh, Chatswood. Yeah. So you would have known uh, yeah, if, if you're yeah. robbing banks. They were at, after uh, me. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, <laughs> some of the banks you mentioned, I, I'm sure it would have been around, around the sa- same time. Yeah. So I worked with those guys for uh, for a while. It was chaotic. You know, you work hard, you play hard. It was it was the uh, the. Wild. I don't mind drinking beer. When when they arrested me, they drank all my beers out of my fridge. Yeah, as long as I knew they were coming. I'm just drinking. Cart. I'm just taking a sip of water, not because I'm nervous, but that sounds sounds probably probably right. Yeah. Look, there was a. The world was different back then. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, doors were kicked in, which you know, now to kick in a door, we'd need all the approval. But before, it'd, it'd grab a shotgun and, and go and kick a door in and uh, and see what what's in there. 
I, I, I'd describe it this way, and I, I'm not going to break it down in any more depth other than, yeah, around that period of time, there were a lot of banks being robbed. And we wouldn't knock off on a Friday because we'd wait, be waiting for someone to, to, to rob a bank. And it did impact on the victims that were being robbed. Obviously, it wasn't just money being taken from, from there. And there was some hard boys running around robbing banks. And, uh, yeah, the stick-ups were a hard crew going after them. And, uh, yeah. The- there was a bit of prest- – like, from a criminal perspective, it was sort of prestigious to be a bank robber. Yeah, yeah. It was, you were, like, if you were a bank robber or an armoured van robber, you were at sort of the top of the chain, you know? That's interesting you, you say that. And that was not dissimilar to what the cops were too. You know, if you worked in the – when I got invited to come to the armed hold-up squad, I, I was wrapped. You know, these are the blokes I've been looking up to and thinking, Jesus, if uh, this this is going to be good. Because they sat high up at, at that point in time. And I, I suppose it was the two worlds colliding. Yeah. You know, you've got, got the tough guys in the stick-ups and then you've got the tough guys doing robbing the banks and uh, the worlds, worlds collided. But uh, – yeah, the Roger Rogerson era and all that. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to defend him. I know um, when I was in the uh, in the stickups, I'd be in the witness box and I'd be under cross examination, going, "Well, you know, you're in the stickups. You uh, you bash people. You load people. You look up to Roger Rogerson. He'd be your hero, wouldn't you?" And and that type of narrative because that was uh, that was just the way it was at the time. One thing from my perspective, you know what I mean, and I can speak on behalf of mate, he put the fear in, into a lot of us blokes because, you know, the, the possibility, he was a shooter and, um, you yep. know, but he also was, you know, the, the, the terminology, uh, do, uh, the Dodger, he was, he's definitely, definitely yeah. that. And, I, I, you know, the error I got, mate, when I got pinched for stick-ups, all they wanted was my money. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was watching him go through my roof cavity and I was getting close to it and um, I was getting a bit itchy then, but... You know, yeah. I don't know. It's part of the back. I think a lot of us blokes back then just, you know, accepted it as part of the game. You know what I mean? But there was blokes around, or detectives in particular, that didn't want no part of that. You know? Yeah, and I, I think that's uh, that's important. Like I, I'm, uh, I'm a detective through and through. And yeah, what went down with the corruption and came out in the Royal Commission, you can't shy away from. It, mm. it, it, it happened, mm. but. That was a small, I, I say sm- small crew. Mm. I, I could walk walk through there and keep my head head up high. I, I played hard going after the bad guys, but I, I kept my. Um, and you never got tempted, Gary. You never got tempted in any of that, like you know. Did- no, and I, I, yeah, I look at this, and uh, maybe I, I'm just, you know, we talked earlier on about uh, being paranoid. Mm. I, I'm, I'm thinking if I got tempted into doing some corruption within the cops. When's that coming back to haunt you? Yeah, yeah. if you uh, and yeah, cops were coming unstuck. They they're um, doing deals with um, people who are addicted to drugs or whatever. What loyalty are they going to have to the cops if they get caught? Now, I, I wasn't tempted by it. I, I've got a lot of respect for people that did some hard work. There's other people that cross the line, and I talk talk about it as a moral compass. Yeah, yeah, they've lost their way in yeah. the moral compass, and let's use Roger Rogerson as an example. I'm sure he did some good in the policing, but he lost his way. And yeah, uh, yeah. so there, there's people. I felt sorry for some people that I don't think were strong characters. And when I say that, it, it depends because we all get put in uh, situations where you you can be. They would have indoctrinated a lot of people that had good intentions. One one hundred percent. And I I watched what was happening with the um, Royal Commission, uh, mm. the police corruption, and some of the people I knew that were caught up in it. I thought they were decent people, but just being caught up in the mm-hmm. in the wrong wrong group. So, I think I was lucky in that um, 
I could stand up for myself. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that came down to I, I kept myself fit the whole time and, uh, mm. yeah, I, I wouldn't back down and I could stand up for myself and people knew what my values were. Um, yeah, I'll go after the crooks, but I'm not not doing the other stuff. And I, I think I was sort of left alone, uh, left alone there. Well, it's no different in the criminal world, you know. Even in prison, right? There's, if you're super duper fit, you can hold your own. No one's going to pull you into nothing that you don't want to be involved in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the sad part, and I'm I'm talking from a police point of view. The sad part I thought was that uh, it tarnished the reputation of all detectives, mm. and it, it made uh, I, I'm before I left the cops and uh, I was one of the few detectives and there was a there was a when I say few there was you know a, a, a core group of us that were working major crime before the Royal Commission and, and got through the Royal Commission unscathed and were working it after and I felt a responsibility to hold their heads up high as detectives and uh, yeah there was a lot of good work that was done yeah there was some there was some bad eggs in the in the group but that's the same with uh, same with anywhere how did you end up in the homicide squad? After uh, I, I left the uh, armed hold-up squad, I went back to Hornsby Detectives. I got an offer to go back to major crime, uh, in organised crime, which I, I homicide was my dream. That's where I wanted to go because I'd done a few homicides when I was at, uh, at Hornsby and then uh, the opportunity presented itself. Um, and I got to homicide and career-wise outside of um, getting... Uh, your designation, so you can call yourself a detective. The probably the proudest moment of uh, my career, from a, a career point of view, uh, was becoming a homicide detective, and that was. Uh, I remember that when I, I first saw the homicide uh, squad uh, turn up, they were almost like a homicide detective. Like, it was like a mythical creature that turned up, and it turned up at the local police station, and people were going. They're, they're from homicide, and I'm I'm looking at them, and they look professional, and uh, the way they went about their business, and that's when I I I didn't want to say it openly. This is where I'm aspiring to, because you just didn't do that, do it. But uh, that's where I, I tried to steer my career, and then uh, when I got there, uh, I worked with a great team and uh, some great mentors, um, Paul Jacob and uh, Andy Waterman. Did you get sort of sort of training to sort of specifically prepare you for that work? No, I think because, again, it's pretty much by invitation. The interesting thing about homicide is no matter what happens on the investigation, you're going to be scrutinised. So if someone someone gets murdered, you either find out who's done it, charge them, and then you go to court, and the courts will scrutinise it. But if you don't charge anyone, it goes to the coroner. So all you're, you're accountable for all your work. So you've got to be thorough, you've got to be professional, and uh, it's homicide is... It's a, it's a, I, I say it's a lifestyle, and people often say I, I'm too passionate. Well, if you're not going to be passionate, find another place to work. It, it shouldn't be homicide. It, it, it's not a nine to five job. You've got to live and breathe it. You owe it to the victims and the families of the victims. But uh, I, for job satisfaction, you know, when someone's life has been taken in, you know, generally horrific circumstances. Um, to be given the responsibility to find out the person responsible for it and uh, the satisfaction you get from doing that job, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's hard to take, take uh, or find anything else that meets that. I've seen a couple of really bad things in jail, whether it be stabbings, uh, mm. in particular two murders, and um, 
Man, I had nightmares after them thing, after those sort of th- for a long time. I could still see the event, I could still see the face, I can st- and the the smell, everything at the time, the fear. Yeah. How did you deal with that? I get asked that question question a lot because I was in I was investigating homicides for twenty five years. Like it was a it was a long career in homicide, so I, I saw a, a hell hell of a lot. My answer to it is that uh, when you're at the job. You got a job to do, so I was focused on if I, I'm seeing a body laying there and it, it could be in horrific circumstances. And it, 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 yeah, if you're human, if you've got any empathy, you're gonna you're gonna have some feeling. But I also had a job to do, so I would really focus on doing my job. So I, I hit the ground, I hit the Did, crime. Scene. Would you say you disassociated or desensitized? Yeah, you try not to, uh, try not to think too much about who the victim is. Hmm. Although you go in there, you feel it. You, uh, uh, there's something about a crime scene. You can see, you know, uh, where people have been uh, murdered, and there's defensive wounds, and you can see there's been a struggle, and they've tried to, um, you know, protect themselves. It, it, it sort of gets to you. But you focus on the job. When you get home, that's sometimes and to understand when a, a murder murder happens. If you're at homicide, you get called out. So you could be doing anything. It could be now, and the phone rings, and all of a sudden you're you're at a murder scene. And basically, you know, for the next week, you're not going to get much sleep, and you won't see family or friends, and that's going to be what you're doing. So you don't have a lot of time. But at some point in time, you get time to stop and take a breath, and that's where it sort of. Um, the horror of what you're seeing come, comes back to you and you think, oh, right, okay. Did you have any nightmares? If you're on call, generally you get called to a murder. Sometimes you're just luck of the draw. You, you're called to three or four in a week and you're just, you're just seeing bodies everywhere. I get to the point sometimes when I, I get home and I just don't want to see evil anymore. Mm. And when, you, when I talk about evil, you're going after some evil people too. Yeah. And... Sometimes if I've spent time in an interview room uh, getting a confession from someone or you know, interviewing someone and when you're talking to some dirty, rotten you know, murderer that uh, yeah, you walk out of that room and you feel dirty, you feel drained and you go home and you take that with you a, a little bit. That'd yep. be hard not to, Gary. That'd be hard not to take. I take my – like I, I interview – uh, survivors of institutional sexual yeah. abuse. I've done 11, uh, 1,100 of them, mm. and it was hard not to take that home. Yeah, you, you carry a bit of it, but I think if you're going to do the job properly, you've got to be prepared to carry a little bit of it. The thing that uh, probably uh, I carry the most is dealing with the victim's families. Yeah. Like, that's hard. You know, you, if you're going to tell someone, you know, the knock on the door and uh, you're going in and uh, are you such and such? Yes, I've got some bad news for you. With wow. yeah, your child's been killed or or whatever. They're the they're the things that the, the pain that the families families carry. So that's that sort of sits with you. And the way that I worked throughout my career, um, I made myself available to the families. Now, yeah. people would say, "No, you you meant to switch off." And again, lazy people say that. I say yeah. bullshit. If you're working homicide, you, it's not. You, you, oh, I'm sorry, ring me when I'm back at work. You, you can't do that. So I always tell the families if they need to talk, um, but yeah, you got my number, call any time. Sometimes they'll call and give you a spray, and mm. but that's okay. They're not spraying you as an individual. They're just they're venting, angry. Yeah, yeah. They're venting, and you let them vent. And, and they come to rely on you? 
Yeah, and uh, I, I got criticised in my career, and I, I, I've just I, I laugh because I just think it's so stupid. People go, I got too close to uh, victims' families. Well, yeah, we're investigating the murder. I'm I'm a human. They're human. I think I, I can get close and mm. still do do my job. That I don't know. I, I've never been a victim of a crime, but having someone doing that's got empathy and compassion would go a long way with me. I, I think it I think it helps them so much, and uh, I I see people that have for whatever reason their loved ones' crimes haven't been investigated properly, and the trauma that causes them. Um, and yeah, I, uh, people that uh, have followed my career or whatever might or might not know about the uh, Barrival murders, yeah. where um, three kids are uh, murdered on the mid north coast of New South Wales, Aboriginal kids. And the initial response by the police was uh, inadequate. And there was, you know, unconscious bias came into it and racism came into it. But for whatever reason, the response wasn't uh, wasn't appropriate. And I've been, uh, you know, involved with those families for, you know, it's almost 30 years now. I still speak to them uh, regularly. Um, I'm out of the cops, but still speak to them regularly. The trauma they suffered because people didn't care about the murder of their th- three children... They carry that so heavily, mm. and uh, I've I, I've learnt a lot about myself after that investigation. I'm thinking, okay, well, if this is what we're doing, because I, I came in as uh, to reinvestigate it five okay. or six years after the murders. There's uh, a documentary on ABC or SBS about that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is it SBS? Uh, yeah, it's uh, called uh, Barrable Murders, and uh, I, I'd uh, invite people to have a look at it because it really gives you a sense of what yeah, I'll watch that. Uh, yeah uh, the impact it, it has. So. Homicide, homicide to me was it was it was my passion. Can um, I just ask you one thing before yeah. I go ahead? What effect did you know did the homicide working in the homicide squad have on your family and your relationships? Yeah, good one, Russell. Dig deep. You knew I was coming, mate. <laughs> oh well, I can't uh, can't avoid it. It's out there. I've I've had uh, two failed marriages, and uh, you know. Relationships break up for a variety of reasons, but did, did uh, the job contribute to it? Um, most definitely, Mo- mm. most definitely. Um, uh, you you grow. I I would fully um, engage in the in the job, so I wasn't present when I should have been present, mm. and different things. There's other factors that come into it, but uh, yeah, basically, uh, your life was chaotic. It was always chaotic. You couldn't set. Uh, you couldn't um, plan a holiday or whatever because mm. you didn't know um, what was going to happen. Or you plan a holiday and you've got to cancel it last moment because something's broken on the case. So I, it definitely played a part. It probably played a part in that I changed. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd be in a relationship and I'd change because the job changed me. And it, it, it did. It, it made me, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I won't say a better person. It made me a different person. It certainly, uh, yeah, I, I've changed on what I concentrated on. Since I've left the cops, and I make a joke of this, but I, it's only a half half a joke, I've got to go back to all family and friends and apologise to them because uh, yeah, the only reason I had success in the cops was because they allowed me to do that uh, mm. do that work and uh, be absent when I, I should have been present. The uh, underbelly badness. Yeah, they they had a, a was that a fair depiction of your relationship status? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those people that don't. Uh, no, un- underbelly. It was a you know, very popular show. We're going back sort of ten years or, or, hmm. or so ago, and uh, a series was made called Underbelly Badness, which was on the, the investigation that I, I led. Yeah, the, the investigation of uh, Andrew and 
uh, Anthony Parrish. Yeah, it was the murder of uh, Terry Falconer, and uh, it was a job that uh, I ran for uh, ten, 10 years. It was, a, it was 10 years, that investigation? Yeah. 10 years. and uh, Was ter- that an obsession for you, that... Yeah, it, it was. It was sort of I. Um, a, any case I, I take on, people might say it becomes an obsession, but that's just I, I'd look at it as a, the commitment that you need to solve uh, solve crimes like that. But the underbelly experience uh, was a strange one. I think that changed changed a lot about um, my standing within the organisation. The writers approached senior police and they approved it and mm. said, "Yeah, that, that's fine." and the uh, the riders then started speaking to me about my private life, about my work life, and all that. They said, "We've done some shows where cops have um, been kicked and the crooks have been the stars. Now we want to sort of swing it round and go. Well, you know, there's cops that are out there working, you know, working hard. So that was sort of the premise of the show. But um, on that, it was quite confronting, Russell. Like uh, it's when the show came out because it was one of the top rating shows." And uh, I was a serving police officer and my private life's playing out on screen, relationships breaking down and uh, all that. And I'm sitting, people going, do you want to come? Because the writers said, the producers, I should say, said, do you want to watch it? And I said, no, look, put it out. I'll watch it when everyone else watches it. So there's some plausible deniability or, mm-hmm. or whatever. People, friends, family said, "You want to come? Ra- or can we come round and watch it with you?" And I said, yeah. "No, no, I want to watch this one on my own." And I think at some stages, I was in the fetal position, sucking my thumb, rocking backwards yeah. and forwards, watching your private life uh, play out. But uh, after it, I had a bit of a target on my back. Um, after because of the show, because because of the show within the organisation, like my, my profile within the cops, you know, it's who, tall who, poppy syndrome type of thing. Do you think? Yeah, I I don't like to say it publicly. I let people make their own own assumptions. I could just be a dickhead, and maybe that's why people didn't like me. I I don't know, but I I know after the underbelly thing, it, it certainly it gave me um, more influence, like because I, I had a, a profile. But it also made me a target for, for my own organisation to a degree, I think. All right. So in, in the Homicide Squad, what was the case that stayed with you the most? There's, it, it's a, it's a hard, hard uh, question to answer. Some murders we can solve within the first 48 hours. That impacts on you. You still take that memory away. But we also, in homicide, got the difficult, the protracted, the complicated murders to work on. So you might be working on this uh, murder investigation for a long time. So the Bowerville one, obviously, sticks with me. It's the the families of the uh, the murdered children are like my family now. We're we're that that close, which is uh, so that sticks with me. There's other other um, crimes. Mark and Faye Levison, um, their son Matthew Levison. Uh, was missing for 10 years and I was with Mark and uh, Faye when we found it, finally found his body. Is that was the gay partner, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Buried, in the, buried in the National Park now. I'd, I'd been, I got to know Mark and Faye very well and uh, we would, um, when, and can you imagine, can you imagine your, your child or, or anyone that you love, when Matthew disappeared, Mark and Faye would go to the National Park on the weekends with a mattock and shovel looking for their son. Look, just digging randomly around the National Park. That's how traumatised they were. And uh, so we got some information and we sort of pushed, I, I really pushed the uh, legislation and uh, different things to get a person to actually take us to where the body was, um, mm-hmm. where the body was buried. And 
being with Mark and Faye, uh, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about that that afternoon. And uh, we'd been there for about four weeks or three weeks looking for Matt's body with earth digging equipment. So you can mm. imagine mother and, and father standing there watching these machines looking for their son's son's body. And uh, it was a uh, late one afternoon, and we were only going to search for about another hour. We'd almost given point of giving up, and then uh, a, fr- a, a friend, or he's a friend and, and colleague, uh, a detective uh, Scott uh, Craddock, was standing beside the backhoe and had a shovel. And uh, I was talking to Mark and Faye, and then um, Scott's called me over and, uh, hey, boss, can you have a look over here? And uh, I could see the look on his face, and I went over there and we saw uh, skeletal remains in the, in the dirt just starting to come mm-hmm. out. And I, I'd seen enough bodies to know it was a human human body, and uh, I had to walk over and tell Mark and Mark and Faye, and uh, you you could imagine you could imagine the emotion that's attached yeah. there, with, and uh, just uh, they cried and gave me a cuddle and. Uh, then they walked over and uh, saw their son's uh, son's remains, and uh, so that sticks with me. Children, I, how? What about yeah. you know the murder of children? How do you deal with that, mate? Ah, uh, it's it doesn't leave you. You get angry. You mm. you get angry like kids. Uh, I don't. There's no excuse for mm. kids should should be protected, mm. and that's uh, yeah. I'm not going to pussyfoot around. There, there's yeah. If someone harms a kid, I go after them mm. hard, and I, I want to see them. I, I want to see them in, inside. There's no, no excuse. I've seen it too much. You go to you go to a post mortem and you see a kid's body mm. being cut up, and you think, yeah, you know, a, a tiny little little, you know, two years old or, or whatever, and someone's done this to them, and uh, you you just want you, no, you. I would want to be a cop to do that, chase people like that. You filled you filled with. I think rage. everyone would. Yeah, and people often say, "Do you bell them? Do you do this? Do you do that?" The way that I go after them, the hardest I possibly can. He's had to be tempting, Gary, not to. I, attempting, and I, I want to, but it would be a weakness if I did. But what I what I do do is just nail them to the wall with the professionalism mm. and and that that uh, I, I'm not going to weaken a case because I'm, I'm going to let my emotions, emotions yeah. get get ahead. And that's yeah, that comes with experience and uh, and then bash them. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's left for you guys when yeah. uh, when they go inside. Mm. A case that sticks with me, and it's you know it's the elephant in the room because it's a case that ended my career is the William Tyrrell case, mm. and uh, that haunts me. That haunts me in that I took over the investigation five months after uh, William disappeared. I led the investigation for uh, for four years. And then allegations were made against me. It's you know, it's all public record that uh, I recorded the conversation on my um, telephone um, when I was speaking to a person I was um, uh, investigating the William Tyrrell matter over. And yeah, the way that uh, I was taken off that investigation, the way that information was released to the uh, to the media about that, I, I had this is my take on it. Other people might have other views. A job was done on me. But what hurts me more than anything is that I made a commitment to the families that I would do everything possible to find out what happened to William. And when I was taken off the investigation, I wasn't allowed to do a handover to the other other police. And it was bullshit. It's, that, yeah. hand, that handover would be critical in any investigation. Oh, 100%. And they, they can dress it up any way they want. And anyone that says that uh, I did do a handover, I call them a liar. And uh, it's, I, there was no handover done, and I just couldn't understand that this is an organisation I'd worked with for 34 years, hadn't been in trouble for anything in that 34 years, and here they are. I, what I recorded a conversation on the phone. 
that they knew about for 12 months before they decided to um, you know, take action uh, uh, against me. Um, so I made no secret of it, and I was happy to do anything. They could supervise me or whatever, just let me do a proper formal handover. And anyone that says, oh, well, you don't need to do a handover, well, they don't understand what the homicide investigation is. But my point with the William Tyrrell matter, and uh, again, I, I check myself because it's not about how pissed off I feel about what's happened to me. I feel sorry for the families. Yeah. And there's two families when we talk William Tyrrell. There's a biological family and the foster care um, family. Well, what I don't understand about that whole thing, Gary, is in the past that would have been let that would they would have let you submit that as evidence and then challenge it in a in a voir dire in in, in a trial. Yeah, there's a lot that doesn't add up for it. There's, you know, under under the Listening Devices Act, you can uh, record a conversation if you've got a, a lawful reason, uh, a, a reasonable cause to protect your lawful interests. I was speaking to a person on my own. It was going to be a hard conversation. It wasn't. There wasn't. It wasn't going to be anything pretty about the conversation, and uh, he might make allegations against me. And so I record that conversation to protect myself, not to use it as evidence, mm. just in case he made allegations uh, allegations against me. I believed I was well within my rights. The courts have decided that uh, I was wrong. Um, I've got to accept their decision. You, you, what else? What else do you do? But um, yeah, it frustrates me the impact that's had on the investigation. The focus should always be: a three-year-old child has disappeared from a small country town. Yeah. You know, the police that are responsible for investigating that should be judged by their actions on that. And, uh, yeah, it's it left a, um, I, I won't say nasty taste because I've tried to move on past mm. that, in all honesty. Like, I'm really trying to, and we've spoken to this when we, we've caught up, that uh, I could go through life, uh, life angry and just be, oh, oh, look what happened. But on the scale of things, what happened to me is nothing compared to this family or mm. the families, Williams' families, that see all this... Um, internal bickering and uh, public um, fighting yeah. over the only focus should be on what happened to William. So I still hope that that, yeah, that will uh, come to fruition. I, I think people need answers and yeah. uh, people need to justify their actions on that investigation. But that, you know, I'm answering a very long way a question of what case sticks with me. Clearly that case, uh, case sticks mm. with me. And there's a few other cases that... Uh, I was working on two at the time that I was removed from the uh, the police that um, I would have liked to have uh, seen to uh, to the end. Do you like? Because I know from a criminal point of view, it's like they wonder. <laughs> some of these blokes wonder if these these detectives look, would. You, do you know within minutes of uh, arresting someone that whether they're good at, good for it or not for body language or. There's instinct that you get from years of. Because um, you got one of the best intuitions of any person I've ever met. Yeah, I look well. Thank, thanks for saying that. And that's um, you know, it, it's a long time I've put myself in those situations where you you do sort of um, get some skills, but I do um, caution that with um, detectives' gut instinct or whatever mm. intuition. Use it caution uh, uh, cautiously in that. Okay, I could sit down opposite you, and I, I you might give me no answers or whatever. But there's something. Yeah, about I wouldn't them. talk unless I just listen. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> I, I, I wouldn't get a word from you. I wouldn't even bother coming in the room. Um, but uh, yeah, it might be the way that you carry yourself or whatever. And I'd, I'd walk out and go, I think that's a person. But you got to make sure that you don't let um, you don't get tunnel vision based on instinct or intuition. Yeah. You got to have the facts. Make sure they overlay the thought so i use intuition to point me in the right direction 
but it's not the, the be all and all. Be all and end all. There's different uh, ways people interview. Some detectives are very much focused on the word that has been said. I tend to um, focus on the way the person reacts when I put that question to them yeah. um, and then uh, then get a sense of it that way. I believe there's pools of trauma. There's little pools, big yeah. pools, but you've lived in the ocean of trauma. Yeah. How did you swim in there? The length of my career in homicide, like um, 20, 25 years investigating homicides, that, that is lengthy. Um, it's like being 25 years in a war zone. Yeah. They're, on they're, the front line of a war zone. There, there is a, is a lot of trauma. Um, the way that I've, I've dealt with it, and I, I think everyone has different um, coping mechanisms or can take a little bit more or a little bit less. People have said to me that they're blown away by the stress uh, I've, I've managed to you know, walk through. I'm blown away by it. What I've learned, I couldn't understand, and this is going back um, yeah, a long time ago. I started to get, through martial arts, I started to get into meditation. And I was really drawn to uh, meditation side of things and uh, qigong, uh, yoga, that type. And this is before everyone knew about it. What's qigong? Can you explain what qigong is? Qigong is like um, a moving form of meditation. We've all seen people do tai chi in yep. the park. It's that type of okay. type of movement. But I was drawn to that, and I couldn't really understand why I was I was drawn to that. And uh, I was. In very intense times in uh, in policing, I always found myself busy in, in policing. But I balanced that out, that soft training with the hard training. Now, I, I know you're right into your boxing. I was into my kickboxing and kung fu and boxing and all that. And a uh, Sifu I was training under, I was super fit, but I was getting sick all the time. And I'd walk past someone with a cold and I'd, I'd, I'd come down with the flu, that type of thing. And he made a point, and I'm glad he did. He said, you, you've got to balance your hard training out with your soft training. And that, that took me down a sort of path of discovery with um, Qigong and, and meditation. When I was in, in the cops, how I would use it, I would come come home and I knew that I was out of step. I, I, I One of my litmus tests, if I know I'm, I'm stressed, if I'm walking down the street and 10 people have annoyed me in the first 100 people I've passed... I know it's not those people. I'm I'm the one that's out of so step. So self indica- indicators for uh, you know a mental health check, yeah. Yeah, and I think with the the meditation that I did and that that type of uh, relaxation, that soft training, gave me an understanding that hold it, Gary, you're going to pull back. You you you're too tightly wound up. And I'm not saying it makes me the most zen person in the world, but it makes me more zen than I would have been if I didn't discover it. So I use that as a tool, and I also physical training like. You know as well as I know, if you're, it doesn't matter how stressed you are, if you step into a boxing ring and someone's kicking you or punching you in the head, you're not worried about what happened at work <laughs> that <laughs> day, is it? You've got your guard nice and tight. So that that helped me a great deal. So that was my uh, that was my release mechanism. I had good people around me, like I had had the failed marriages and all the trauma that come, comes with that, but... I had good friends, I had family, and uh, yeah, I, I always had people that I could rely on. I try to do things that um, I don't. I didn't when I was in the cops. I didn't hang around with a lot of police, and I think that was good. And uh, some old mates that will always put you in your place. You can't yeah, pretend. I mean, everyone needs one of them. You can't pretend like my mates are constant. No matter what I was achieving in uh, work, they go, "Jesus, you took ten years to lock those people up." Mm, like uh, it, yeah. always taking the piss out of you, which I, I think is a good thing. The lowest point. I there was some low points after the relationships, obviously. The, the but most recent low point was after I um, left the cops, and uh, then I was charged. And uh, 
you think of something that you love, and, and what I loved doing was catching killers. That was my passion. I was a homicide detective. Now, in one day, that was taken away from me. So you think of- Created a void, yeah? Just this, it was who I was. I, I'm mm. the homicide detective, and then one day, that's just taken taken completely away from me. And uh, I had some uh, had some low moments after that, and uh, I remember one day, you know, just- uh, not motivated. I stopped training for uh, a couple of weeks, which was un- unusual. I'm just sitting on the lounge. I hadn't got dressed. I'm just sitting there mid-morning. I virtually just had to slap myself and say, wake up to yourself and uh, get back into it. So I started training and, and getting a routine and getting that happening and just thought, I'm not going to let these pricks break me. I'm not going to let them beat me. And uh, so I adopted a more positive outlook on life. And when I think what's happened to me, on the scale of things, it's pretty minimal. Like I, I just look at the victims' families of the lost loved ones and, and people who have been through genuine trauma. I, I yeah, had a fall, falling out with an organisation I, I worked with. I put it in perspective and I, I've just tried to um, move forward and stay, uh, stay positive and... Uh, what I've found, because I had so much passion um, to you know, locking up the bad guys, I had to steer that passion somewhere else. And uh, you know, I, I, I sort of got into that world of podcasting that we've, we've talked about and we're obviously yeah. seeing here doing now. And uh, it's I've learnt a lot about myself in the last couple of years since I've been out of the cops, actually. So tell me this. What's drawn you to doing the podcast? What was the driving force for you to sort of say, well, this is this is for me? I didn't really understand the concept of podcasting, though I, I had been listening to um, you know, talkback radio show my whole uh, whole life, and mm. uh, I loved that long form conversation. And uh, one of the offers that came to me um, was about doing a doing a podcast, and the premise was uh, speaking to cops about investigations. So um, we we did that for a, uh, a season. I think there were, the first season was six or eight uh, eight episodes of people I'd worked with, and I enjoyed that, but. It was one-dimensional, and what I mean by that, it was me talking to another cop, so we're looking at things from a cop's point of yeah. view, which I enjoy. You know, I, I, still, I love I, that run with Russell Oxford. I, I, oh, I mean, I was captivated by that. What, what a champion, champion bloke he is, and he, yeah. he's one of the people I looked up to in the, in, in the cops and really uh, aspired to be uh, like a, a detective like him. But then uh, I started uh, thinking, okay, well, I know the world of crime's not one-dimensional. And I thought let's have let's people look into crime from other perspectives. And then uh, one of the uh, I, I got some uh, an ex uh, bikey on the on the show, and people enjoyed that. And it's good hearing their side of the story. Someone put me in contact with Bernie Matthews, and I know you uh, mm. you knew Bernie, Bern- Rob- Bernie Matthews was a bank robber. Yeah, a notorious bank robber, jail writer, prison activist, hard hard man, hard journalist. Man. There, were, there were so many layers to uh, to Bernie, and uh, when I met him, and uh, that sort of opened my eyes to what he suffered when he was at Grafton Prison and mm. the brutality there. And uh, what I liked about Bernie, and sadly he's passed away, and I I know that rocked uh, both of us when uh, when he passed away. But uh, he wasn't making excuses. No. He's just saying. Yeah, this was the environment. Uh, he was the longest-serving prisoner in Katingle, the mm. first maximum security prison. He said, this this environment made me this way. And 100%. Not, not making excuses. And he that- done your, he done Tamworth. I think he'd done Tamworth Boys Home, which is a documentary home for killers. 
Um, he done graft, and, and I think it's well documented these days after the Nagel Royal Commission to prison, the brutality that those inmates suffered there. Yeah, and so from that, that sort of changed my perspective and think, okay, if we're going to fight crime, how, how do you? I can't, uh, I can't fight crime locking people up anymore. But okay, this type of environment creates uh, creates people. Now that flowed on from meeting a couple of other people and led me to uh, meeting you and John uh, Killick uh, introduced us and uh, then I hear your story and I, I, I say this without pissing in your pocket sitting here in your podcast, I was blown away by your uh, your story and it may really sort of change my view on uh, yeah where's the, where's the good, where's the evil and uh, yeah. yeah the things that happen to you in institutions just shouldn't happen and I see the work that you're doing and uh, I think, well, yeah, that's uh, really making a difference, and people uh, people need to uh, hear about the things that happen that cause the crime. For sure, and that it, it's really that's become, um, if anything, that's become a passion now. Looking at different ways of uh, ways fighting crime, and the best way is always you know prevent it. I but, say this, and, I, and I'm passionate about it. I think if we like, if we take away the stigma out of sexual abuse. Uh, in, uh, for men and women, like I talk about, you know, I, I carried something, a whole heap of guilt and shame and, and you know, what I had to do is hand it back to its rightful owner. That's the perpetrators themselves. Yeah. And that changed my life. Yeah. And that allowed me to heal and not commit no more crime. Yeah, you talk about um, coming away from crime scenes or when you're you're speaking to victims. Uh, I know when I did the podcast with you, I, I walked away from that and I felt heavy from it. Like mm. a, your your story just blew blew me away and it made me angry. Mm. Made me angry angry for for you and uh, and and what you'd been through, but also a lot of respect for the way that uh, you had uh, decided to deal with it. Mm. Child sexual abuse or institutional sexual abuse, people don't know how to yeah. deal with it and it's just easier to sweep it under the table and it takes people like you. And that's what I say when I, I talk about it. You're a tough guy. Like, you're not crying poor, oh, me, oh, my. Mm. You're saying this has happened to me and this is why I who I am. So, you know, full respect. But How do yeah. you heal, Gaz, from the trauma that you've been exposed to? I Look, I, I think you always carry it with you. Mm. It's I, I try to put it, okay, that's there, but that's not going to define me. I, I I'd like to think that the, the trauma, if I, if I if I give into it, I've um yeah I've let myself down. Like, have you got trauma triggers that you know that sort of thing? I know that I just I start to withdraw. Mm. If I if I start to withdraw, uh, I think yeah okay that you you got to wake up to yourself. There was there was one period of time I, I've I've spoken about it before and I I laugh about it. Probably shouldn't be laughed about, but uh, this is the way I I dealt with it. A second marriage breakup um, traumatized me. Um, work was super pressure. It was during the um, that um, tuna job, the underbelly one. The world was just pressure, and I had this nice apartment that overlooked, had beautiful view. I pulled all the blinds down for about two weeks, so mm. I would function, I would go to work, I would come home, the blinds were down, and it was almost symbolic of shutting the world out, and I, I did that for about two weeks, and I, I, I had to wake up to myself, and no one would have seen it, no one would have seen, the, uh, seen me withdraw that way, and I thought, 
what are you doing, you idiot? You, you've got to wake up yourself. You're spiralling. And I put the put all the blinds up and, uh, yeah, started to get back out in the world. So, And you get your awareness through your um, meditation and that sort of stuff. I, right? I, I think so. I honestly believe that's helped me because I – and I don't meditate every every day, but it's there as a tool that I can use when I, mm. I need it that, that helps me. And that, that gives me sort of perspective that understanding, you know, what, what's going on. Do you think that the doing these podcasts, if you would have had that knowledge back in the day when you were a detective, would have made you a better detective? I, I think it would have. Um, More empathetic and, uh, and compassionate? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I said earlier on knowledge is power and understanding where you guys are coming from always helps. I like to think I, I had I, a lot of my success with my my career was you know actually sitting down and communicating with people. So there was that that empathy there, but... When I, I look back at my career, I, if I was going after you to lock you up, I didn't have time to work out why Russell went bad. Like it was sort mm. of, there's my case, I work on it, I try and find the offender and then move on to the next case. Mm. That, that's what I did as a cop. <laughs> since, I've, since I've left the police, I've been able to take a step back and uh, I definitely think it would have made me a, a better better detective knowing what I know now speaking to, speaking to you guys. And, uh, yeah. I've realised, and it's a little bit humbling for me. Being, yeah, I was a cop, and yeah, identified as, as the uh, the uh, detective that, uh, yeah, working on some of the, the tough cases. My world was flipped. Then I became the crook that was walking into. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've walked into court with cameras on you. Hmm. I, I did it for uh, two weeks, and uh, yeah, walking from the railway station to the courthouse with cameras in in my face the whole time, following hmm. me the whole way. It was humiliating for me. Imagine if you were going to court, like I'm feeling the pressure, and I was, what's the worst worst I get? Like I've recorded conversations on my phone. I'm not going to jail for life. Imagine the pressure you would feel if you were accused of a crime and yeah, whether you'd done it or, or hadn't done it, you didn't know what you were walking into in the court. So it's a horrible feeling. Uh, and feeling like I felt like the all the resources of the state were against me. Yeah, you know, the the police mm. were coming after me. And they were coming after me big time, and I felt the pressure there. So that's given me an understanding, looking at it from a, a different perspective. Mm. For a long time, though, but for a long time, you held the power. Yeah, and then the power is being held against you. Yeah, I, I remember. First time after it got public, a highway patrol officer pulled pulled me over after I left the police. My car was unregistered by a day. Yeah, mm. I forgot to get it registered because we mm. don't have those stickers. They would have flagged that in days gone by. Yeah, and he could he could have just said, "I oh, will do it, do it now." I had my son there. He breathalysed me. This was on the north coast. Breath breathalysed knew who I was mm. and just I, I don't you hate that when they say please what's your name yeah you know I, when they know who you are I I, 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 I just played the game Here, here's my license mm. blah 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 and I had my son sitting beside me and they said um, where have you been I said I, I've been to visit my um, parents and have you been drinking I said uh, no um, it was 11 o'clock in the morning I said I had two beers last night um, at seven o'clock not a worry not a worry in the world are you sure you haven't been drinking no, he walks away. I see him on the phone. I see him laughing on the phone, talking because he's obviously, you know, I've, I've pulled over. Look who I've, I've pulled over. And then he came back and said, uh, "I want to uh, blow you again, uh, like as in the, the, the um, breathalyzer again," which I probably could have refused. I, I didn't know. I just said, "Okay." 
And he's gone, I can smell alcohol. I said, I've just eaten an orange. There's the orange pills, you know, sitting there. And then he asked my son, have you been drinking? And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, where's this going? Mm. Kept me there for about... That's harassment. 15 minutes lecturing me, humiliating me in front of my son. I wanted to just throttle him. I didn't. Mm. And then he he said something. I said, okay, you've had your fun. How about you go now? Or something left left there. That was an experience I, I got. And the point I'm making with that, I do understand that now. And it's mm. taken me a long time to understand it, but the power of the police. Another... Um, thing that really uh, made me look at things from a different perspective. They had the uh, Black Lives Matters march, mm. and uh, I I went to uh, went to that, and I'd, I'd marched on Parliament. You're a lefty, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been mm. accused of a, a social justice warrior or, mm. or whatever. But, no, I, I really agree with what the, that march was 100%. about. And I'd, uh, I'd marched on Parliament uh, four times with uh, the Barrowville families, and this was a different thing. And I turned up, and there was some... Uh, Cops that I knew there. Public right squad, isn't it? Public order squad. Yeah, they they were there. And this was during the COVID uh, lockdown. Mm. Uh, So it was was potentially it could have escalated Mm. huge. And then I I saw some of the the Aboriginal community that I knew and Mm. they were were going, you know, what do you think is going to happen here? And I was really nervous about that. So you were marching with them? I was marching with them. Yeah. And I also felt how vulnerable it is where you see I'm looking at police from a different point of view because Mm. before I... It's intimidating. Yeah, but before I'd look at the riot squad Mm. and be going up and and speaking to half of them that I know or or Mm. had worked with, and now I was in a a different side, and I think, yeah, I get it now. It is is intimidating. So little things like that have, um, I think, made me a better person or made me more aware Mm. and... uh, Unless I went through that experience of getting, um, you know, uh, charged and humiliated in the way I was, I wouldn't have seen it that way. So it's probably a blessing in disguise. And I look at it now, I'm enjoying my life, doing what I'm doing on the podcast, meeting people like you. It's opened opened the world up to me that I, I wouldn't otherwise have experienced. And really, I, I've found my passion. Let's fight crime. But you don't have to fight crime by locking people up all the time. Hmm. You can prevent it and there's other ways of, uh, you know, doing it. I, you know, I too, I believe that, you know, with the work I do at The Voice of a Survivor, you know, uh, I believe that too, we're trying, one of our aims is to minimise crime. We're, we're minimi- trying to take away the stigma from sexual abuse and we're trying to get people to talk up about what had happened to them. And, um, you know, and as a result of that, when people do that, they can start the healing process. So they're not start, they're not, they're not going out to use drugs and commit more crimes and that sort of stuff. So, man, I really relate to what you're saying. I, I, it resonates with me and, you know, we've got like 14,000 clients with what we do and um, we're working in every state. We've been going for five years and it's one of the things that I'm proud about that I, I you know, I too, like yourself, can be uh, a, a participating member in my community and try to minimise that crime uh, play, you know, crime in our, in our area and make the, the community a safer place and, you know, make it uh, safer for children and, and people to heal. It's it's good for the soul, isn't it, oh, that, do, doing stuff like that? Yeah, the difference, you are fighting crime like... The amount of people that have ended up on the wrong side of the bars because of what's happened to them as children and uh, they didn't feel that they could talk about it. So taking that stigma away um, is doing so much uh, so much good. And it's just good to uh, see someone that, you know, as we said, <laughs> we would have been chasing each other. You yeah. would have been running. I would have been chasing been you running. or whatever. And Driving really fast. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have kept, have kept up with you. But it's good that we can sit down sit down and talk. And uh, I know, you know, I, I found it fascinating that uh, cops I know that had locked you, locked you up 
have reached out to me when they heard that I was talking to you and all that and said, oh, he's not a bad fella, like talk, talking about you. So we mm. break down that stigma and it, it's not a bad way. There still needs to be a police force. I haven't swung that, that far left. There's yeah. still, you know, you do the crime, sure. you do, do, the, do the time, but let's look at ways of uh, fighting, fighting and uh, preventing it. So, yeah, good luck to you too. Yeah, Gary Jublin, thanks for being on the stick up, mate. It was a pleasure having you here. Check out Gary's podcast, Gary Jublin, I Catch Killers. It's a ripper. You've had some really good guests from various walks of life, mate. And I've even been on there. It was one of the best I've done. Gary Jublin, thanks for having us. Cheers, Russ. Thanks, mate. Mate, please state your full name. And I just want to remind you that this recording could be used against you by haters in social media. <laughs> okay, you've really turned the tables on me. Gary Jubilin's my name, former Detective Chief Inspector from the Homicide Squad. Listener.